episode 185 of the Pilot the Pilot podcast takes off now. Fly with Garmin Avionics, then grab your mobile device and make the Garmin Pilot app your cockpit companion. Get advanced functions you'll use before, during, and after every flight, including updating your aircraft's databases and logging engine data, plan, file, fly, log with Garmin Pilot. The Pilot to Pilot podcast is brought to you by The Finer Point. They have an amazing ground school app for the knowledge you need to fly. To learn more, visit learnthefinerpoints.com. My name is Gary Krasnov. I'm a retired Delta pilot, and I currently uh, work for REA, which is a registered investment advisor serving the airline community. Aviation, what is going on? And welcome back to the Pilot the Pilot podcast. My name is Justin Seams, and I am your host. Today's podcast is with Gary. Gary works for RAA. As you might have heard in a couple other episodes, uh, they have been a sponsor for a while. Retirement and retirement is very important. If you do want any questions about retirement, do check them out at raa.com backslash pilot the pilot. This episode is more than just about retirement, though. It is specifically it is specifically about Gary and his story, his aviation story, with a little bit of a sprinkle of retirement and its importance. Uh, he has a crazy story, so it's one that I definitely recommend you listen to the whole thing. Uh, get to know Gary a little bit more. It's a great episode, and I'm very thankful for him to come on. Aviation, if you enjoyed today's episode, please leave us a review on iTunes. Uh, go ahead and follow us on Spotify. Subscribe on iTunes. Make sure you click all those buttons. That's how more people find the podcast. The more activity on iTunes, Spotify, and comments, the more likely it is to rank higher, and the more likely more people will listen to the podcast and get into aviation. Aviation, I want to keep it much longer. You can follow me, Pilot the Pilot, Pilot's Coffee, the best coffee in the game. Without any further ado, here's Gary from RAA. Gary, what's going on? Welcome to the Pilot the Pilot podcast. Thank you. Thank you for inviting me. Glad to be here. Yeah, I'm excited to have you on. Uh, for now, people have gotten used to hearing the RAA ad in the middle of it. So we thought it was a great idea to kind of bring everyone behind the scenes of RAA and share the story of RAA and specifically you and your flying story. So I'm looking forward to sharing your story and talking a little bit about retirement. Sounds great. First off, I want to say congrats on the retirement. I know this was a more recent thing. This is kind of a COVID retirement, right? Or was this kind of planned? Were you always looking to retire early? No, I actually was not looking to retire early. Um, I love flying for Delta. Uh, when the uh, when COVID hit and the early retirement package came out, um, it was the right thing at the right time for me. Well, that's good. It's funny how uh, aviation's all about timing, and I'm sure we'll get into that later. So uh, what was available for you at the time when it, it was perfect for your family situation, then absolutely take it and um, go do other things. Exactly right. Well, perfect. Well, let's go ahead and get started with your story. The first question I ask everyone is, why aviation? What was it for you that uh, allured you into this uh, great career? Well, I think my story is maybe a little different than many. Uh, I did not grow up aspiring to be a pilot. Um, I actually was interested in going into international banking. And I graduated from college in 80. And if anybody's old enough to remember that, the economy was uh, in pretty rough shape back then. And there wasn't a lot of employment opportunity. And I was involved in some political campaigns uh, my senior year in college. And a Secret Service agent befriended me. And we spent a lot of time talking about what I was going to do in the future. And I really didn't know. I was kind of a rudderless ship. And he said, why don't you go in the military and fly airplanes? It'll give you five years to figure out what you want to do with your life. And you'll have a great time doing it. So there was no, like not a single want to be a pilot at all in your whole life leading up to this moment. 
there really wasn't. My best friend uh, learned to fly when he was in college. And I kind of looked at him and said, why? I, I, I just, it, it was never a driving force for me. So you then were presented with this idea to go in the military and go fly, but you didn't have to choose aviation. You could have literally done anything. I'm sure maybe there's not international banking, but there's more stuff that would probably seem like it would fit what you wanted out of life. Like why you still had to make the choice to go choose aviation. Was it just solely in the fact that this one guy said, do aviation in the military and a light bulb went off. You're like, I'm doing aviation military. Well, he, he told me some stories. Um, he was kind of a Vietnam era guy and he told me some stories, uh, flying stories. He flew, uh, F4s in the air force. And, you know, you, when you listen to some of those stories, it's pretty easy to get sucked in. Uh, um, I was maybe still am a little bit of an adrenaline junkie and it seemed as good or better, probably better an idea that anybody else had presented to me. Yeah, it's, uh, that's crazy. I mean, you consider yourself adrenaline junkie and you're presented with this idea. When most people are presented with the idea of being a pilot or even think about being a pilot, or usually the first time it ever pops in their brain, they immediately cast doubt and it's either I'm not smart enough or it's going to be too hard or I have bad vision. Did you have that, that sense of doubt about this or were you kind of just all ready to go and give it your best shot? Um, I think I was all pretty ready to go. Um, Confidence generally is not something I have lacked in my life. So um, given the opportunity, um, I, I thought it was other people do it. I figured I could do it too. Yeah. I mean, that's an important thing for everyone to listen right now because so many people always say I'm not that great at math. It's like, well, newsflash, I'm not good at math either. And here we are. <laughs> so that's right. thank goodness that's right. the computers do a lot of the math for us and we're not having to calculate as much stuff as you did uh, when you were at Delta. That's correct. That's yeah. correct. So what was it? So you're presented with this idea. How long before the idea became an action? How long before you actually went to do some research and actually applied and got selected? What was the process like? Uh, so I, uh, once I decided um, I was really going to pursue it, uh, it's interesting because my best friend that I talked about that learned how to fly, uh, he at the same time was applying to the military to fly. And so I called him. His name is Jeff. And I said, Jeff, what do I do? And he said, well, here's where the recruiter is. Uh, why don't you give him a call? So I, when I was still in college, I, I went to University of New Hampshire. Uh, I called the Air Force recruiter because Pease Air Force Base, which is no longer there, uh, was right down the road. And I went and met with them and went through the process. And the Air Force said, we have got this great job for you. It's called a navigator. Um, we don't have a pilot spot for you. And the recruiter uh, tried convincing me that I could go in as a navigator and, you know, eventually fly. And, you know, I tongue in cheek said to him, is there something in my application that says I'm that gullible? And he laughed and said no. And so uh, that was the end of my Air Force career. A uh, couple months after I graduated, my buddy called me and said, hey, the Navy's looking for people. So I went down to the Navy recruiter um, in Allentown, Pennsylvania, which is where I grew up and put my application in and took the tests. And the next thing I knew, the two of us were driving to Pensacola together to go to uh, Aviation Officer Candidate School. Were you sad about not going into the Air Force? Like, was that the first goal that you wanted or was it just kind of, uh, you're checking off boxes? Like you call the Air Force first because you think Air Force pilots and then you go on to the next step and then your buddy says Navy and you go there and then you would possibly go down to Army if, uh, if all else failed. I, I don't know that I would have gone that next step. Um, 
it didn't happen, so I, I, I can't really say I would have or wouldn't have. Uh, the Air Force was, I mean, Pease Air Force Base was 10 miles from campus, so it was just the easy first step. It was right there. Um, I really, again, not being somebody who had aspired and studied aviation, um, I didn't realize that the Navy had more airplanes than the Air Force did at the time. So, you know, Air Force is what popped in my head, and this Secret Service agent had been an Air Force pilot. So that's just kind of where it took me. What did your family and close friends, obviously your friend, your buddy Jeff was kind of going through the same process, but you never showed any interest in this whatsoever growing up. What were they thinking when you're like, hey, mom, dad, brother, sister, whoever, uh, I'm going to go to the military and be a pilot? Well, my mother's reaction was over my dead body. Um, and that, that is a accurate quote. Um, nobody in my family had ever been in the military. Um, so it was kind of a foreign thing for their, their way of thinking. Uh, but once we talked about it for a while, they came around to it. And, um, I know they were always incredibly proud of, of what I accomplished and what I've done with my life. So, um, they don't, they don't look back, nor do I. There's probably someone listening right now that is in the same conundrum that you were in. How do I convince my mom to let me either join the military, be a pilot, or even both be a pilot in the military? What did you do to actually convince her? I can just imagine putting her foot down and be like, nope, doesn't matter, Gary, stop talking to me about it. It's never going to happen. Was it persistence? Was it facts? Was it evidence? Was it uh, just trying over and over and over again? Or is it kind of some bribery? You know, you're like, hey, if I do this, I'll uh, do this or something like that. Well, it, it was definitely persistence. It was also the, um, my parents raised us to be masters of our own destiny. And, you know, at that moment, that was my destiny. So they, you know, once we talked it through, they accepted it. Um, you know, if, if I, I think about modern times, um, if my, not that my son would have to sell this to me, but if my son did, I would think about, well, he's not going to come home and live in our basement. So that's probably a good thing. And so maybe my, that went through my mom's head and said, what, maybe if Gary goes in the military, he's not going to come home after school. So. Yeah, finally, he won't be in the basement anymore. <laughs> that's a, that's quite the, uh, the contrast in careers that you, you have kind of gone on, you know, international banking, um, there's probably travel on that sitting in the back being flown by the pilot. Um, that's, that's really cool. And it just goes to show you how, one, how easy it really is to get into aviation. It's as easy as calling a recruiter. It's as easy as going to an airport and just saying, hey, I want to fly. And and two, showing the community and the willingness for everyone to kind of stand up. And uh, I'm glad your buddy Jeff was there for maybe a soundboard and kind of talk you through it and like what it looks like. And and that sounds like a pretty cool thing that happened. Um, it was awesome. And, you know, we, uh, he and I were roommates all through flight school. We, we, we grew up a catty corner across the street from each other. Um, I mean, we've known each other truly our whole lives. And we went through uh, flight school together. Uh, he wound up uh, being based on the West Coast. I was on the East Coast. He's still on the West Coast. He is still flying for American Airlines. Um, and I wound up flying for Delta. So it was the, the send-off of our journey. So talk about going to Pensacola for the first time. I'm guessing you guys got in your car, you drove down there, or got on a plane, whatever it may be. What was kind of your pre-thoughts of going into this? You know, you, all, you already said you never lacked confidence. So I'm guessing you're pretty confident in this. You knew that you were going to be able to, to do this and be successful at it, right? I, I did believe that. And uh, we had about, oh, four months between the time we were accepted to the time we had to report. And we did drive down. And those four months we spent maybe getting in the best shape I've ever been, uh, both of us. That's all we did was work out. And so I felt 
pretty confident that I could take whatever they threw at me. And um, what I, and having talked to people, you know, going through boot camp, whether it's aviation officer candidate school or uh, Marine boot camp in Paris Island, it's, it's more a head game than it is a physical game. Uh, they can only make you what you physically can do and you can't do anymore. You know, and I, in a weird way, I, I showed up in great shape. I could do a lot of pushups and I envied the people who could do half the pushups I could do because they were done way before I was done. <laughs> so, yeah. Cause so they I were worked, mentally trying something. to break you. They didn't care about how many you could do. They wanted to see how you pushed through and handled the adversity. Your adversity happened to be at a hundred pushups or someone else's adversity was at 15 pushups. <laughs> That's exactly right. Exactly right. Or you were running a five minute mile and they're running a 10 minute mile. Yep. <laughs> yep. I, I learned that lesson the hard way. So if anyone takes anything out of this podcast, what you're saying is going very out of shape and very <laughs> not ready, right? <laughs> no, show up in shape, act like you're not in shape. Oh. That's, that's the best way to do it. Wow. No, that's I, some I think, knowledge, I man. Think, I think the, the drill instructors are, are pretty well versed in, in figuring out who you are and they're going to sniff out uh, anything that's not real. So. So looking into, or not looking into this, um, looking back and your mentality going into it and how everything went down, you know, the first couple of weeks with everything was basic training was kind of training in general, everything you thought it was going to be, or were you not really prepared for what you were embarking on? No, I, I, I think I was prepared. I mean, the AOCS and that part was, was, you know, more physical than mental. So, you know, I was, I was prepared for that. There were some academic stuff that, wasn't too terribly hard. Um, getting to flight school was uh, a fire hose. Um, I had never flown an airplane before. And, uh, you know, I show up and you go through some ground school stuff and you learn about weather and that kind of thing and, and some aerodynamics. And then it's time to go fly. And you do a little bit of simulator and the simulators back then were very, very rudimentary. Might as well have been a broomstick, you know, attached to the floor. Hogwarts <laughs> um, school flying. Yeah, absolutely. And, uh, uh, you know, I show up for, it's called FAM-1 in Navy, familiarization flight one. And the airplane that I flew in primary training was a T-28, which to the untrained eye looks like a World War II fighter. I mean, it's a 1,425 horsepower uh, Korea, really, era airplane. And needless to say, it is an awful lot of airplane for somebody who's never flown an airplane before. Um, and it's loud and it's noisy and it's hot. And, um, it was, uh, quite the initiation. That was the first time you ever in an airplane? Uh, flying an airplane. Yes. Dang. Yes. That's a, a welcome to aviation right there. Right. And I still think back and, and people who have any aviation experience, maybe will understand or maybe want the thing I walk, the thing that most impressed me about my instructor was we get in the airplane and he copied down all of the ATIS the first time through. And I'm supposed to be copying it down too. And I had to listen to it like 12 times before I could capture all the information that I was supposed to be capturing. Yeah, it really is a fire hose. It's not necessarily hard. It's just managing all the information and knowing what's critical information and how to kind of uh, look for what you really need out of the ATIS. So, you know, uh, notums or whether winds or uh, pressure, whatever you actually need and at that time and looking for. Uh, my one question for this whole thing is, were you ever afraid that you just weren't going to like flying? Like you signed on to this whole idea. You signed on to, to this whole dream of a military pilot and you, you're going through all this training, you're going through everything, but you've never actually flown an airplane. What if you hated it? Did that 
ever go through your mind? It never crossed my mind. It never crossed my mind. I mean, when you, to me, when you look at uh, whether it was that T-28, which was actually a lot of fun to fly, and I'd love to go back and fly one now that I actually have a clue on how to do it, um, or you look at fighters or you look at anything, how can it not be fun? You know, I mean, flying airplanes is just a cool thing. Yeah, you're not wrong. I mean, I, you don't have to convince me. <laughs> flying airplanes <laughs> is definitely a cool thing. And, and flying a fighter, fighter, or a fighter, oh, someone said fighter, fighter. Flying a fighter jet would be just incredible. And especially your first time going in it. Was it a, a long learning curve to feel comfortable uh, with ever, all the information that you had to figure out? I'm guessing it took a couple flight lessons. Uh, or were you a natural and just kind of picked it up right after that ate it? So you're like, all right, I'm good to go. Uh, I don't know that I would call myself a natural, um, but I think, you know, I caught on fairly quickly. Um, you know, it's, it's eye-hand coordination is a lot of it. And that just, that part was okay. And it was just the, the hardest part about that flying was, you know, the classic staying ahead of the airplane mentally, um, thinking what's coming next instead of thinking about what you're doing now. So that, that was a, a pretty steep learning curve. Um, I remember, I think it was our solo was our 18th flight in the airplane. And, you know, again, I'm flying T-28s, 17 flights doesn't seem like a whole lot. You know, it's maybe 20 hours of flight time. And I take off out of Corpus Christi in this T-28 all by myself. And all I was thinking was, I can't believe they're letting me do this. <laughs> no nerves or anything. I was just like, what idiots? How could they make me do this? <laughs> Is that kind of your most memorable flight, would you say, is the first solo you ever had? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, it was, um, um, again, you know, I was, I was giggling with, with joy and, you know, there was a whole lot of incredibly positive emotion that came with it. Um, I fundamentally knew that I, in a lot of ways, really didn't know what I was doing. Um, but that actually didn't stop me from taking that airplane up and doing a whole bunch of things I wasn't supposed to be doing. No way. <laughs> so. Let's try this. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I was just about to ask, uh, everyone knows kind of the civilian solo, go take off, do some landing, some touch and goes and you come back and land. What, what, a, what did a solo look like for you? Was it very similar or was it, Hey, you got an hour, go, do you want, or they have a, I'm guessing in the military, they had a very detailed step-by-step-by-step step step of what you're supposed to do. Not back then they didn't. We had, you know, areas that we had to stay within the fly. Um, so you uh, went out to that area and flew around. It was right along the beach in Corpus Christi. And you could just do whatever kind of maneuvers that you were quote unquote allowed to do, which um, isn't quite how I spent my time up there. Um, and then you go and do some touch and goes. And then you fly back. And, uh, you know, the re-entering the traffic pattern at a busy airport um you know your your the octave of your voice is probably a little higher because there's some trepidation i hope i'm going the right way and not against traffic <laughs> yeah. but, uh, uh, hello student pilot please help me yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh so yeah. you mentioned this twice i have to ask what'd you do what was the flight like what maneuvers oh did you do? it was fun so i did some loops um i tried doing hammerheads which you know um so we had not done acro yet um, in our syllabus. And so I really, when I said I didn't know what I was doing, I really didn't know what I was doing. And try doing them was completely unsuccessful. And 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 But I had a blast. And when I got to the acro phase of um, the syllabus, I asked the instructor, how come we don't do hammerheads? 
And he said, well, the airplane's so old and the engine is so heavy that they're worried that the engine will separate from the fuselage if you snap it over like that. So I started, hmm, you know, probably good that I couldn't do one. So yeah. It's like, note to self, don't tell anyone I try to do hammerheads in my solo until I am out of the military. That's right. That's right. <laughs> did you eventually ever tell anyone you're like over beers one time, you were going to your instructor like, so I did try to do hammerheads. <laughs> no, I never told my instructor that. I've got breaking never. news. I, I hope he, is he, is he, um, well, I don't know how long ago is this. Is he still alive? Do you still stay in contact with him? I do not, but I know he's still alive. Well, good. I will find him and send them this clip right now so he knows. <laughs> yep. Get a phone call or text. Be like, Gary, what the heck? <laughs> That's awesome. So you went up, soloed. Um, was that, I mean, obviously aviation sounds like it, it It did come a little bit natural to you, like you're saying. Like you you were able to pick up on stuff very quickly. Not many people go up and solo and uh, the adventure seeker like yourself and go do hammerheads or attempt acro when they've never done an acrobatic flight before. So um, were, were things progressing how you wanted? Did you feel like you're ahead of the curve, behind the curve, right on the curve? How was it, how was it looking? Um, I think I was slightly ahead of the curve. Um, I didn't break any records with my grades in flight school, but I did, I did pretty well. Um, I'd say above average, but I wasn't, uh, I wasn't burning the world on fire or anything. Were you and Jeff having some competition? Was it kind of a little bit of competitiveness between the two of you to try to do better or was it more collaboration and try to make sure you guys just both survived? Yeah, I think it was collaboration. Both survived. Um, we have been competitive with each other in most things in our life, but um, oddly, I, I'd never really had thought about that until you just asked the question, but I don't <laughs> think it was ever, ever something we thought about. Yeah. I, I just know myself, I would be like trying to be the best that I could more so against my friend than anyone else in the class. Like if we both came in dead last. As long as I finished one above him, I would be happy. Um, looking back, not looking back, let's say, uh, progressing through your career, you're flying the T28. What's next kind of, uh, what was the whole process like of getting to Delta and what you flew in the military? So I flew, uh, so that was primary flight training advance was the T44, which is a King air. Um, so after when you're almost done with primary, you go, you put in your dream sheet to pick what's next, where you're going to go. Um, I wanted to fly P3s um, and I got selected to fly P3s, which was fortunate for me. Um, I think what influenced that was my on-wing, the guy who had me from FAM1 through Solo had been a P3 pilot okay. um, and he sold me on the lifestyle. Um, so, What was the lifestyle? Uh, because, what was the lifestyle we were selling? You know, when I hear uh, P3s, all I think <laughs> is hurricane hunters. <laughs> so yeah, I just so, imagine you guys flying through a bunch of crap and then uh, having a bunch of turbulence. So. Um, it was, we didn't really do hurricane hunting back then. It was anti-submarine warfare, um, ASW is, is what, where I was going, going to wind up. Um, it was more the way he described it. He says, you can make a lifestyle choice or you can make an airplane choice. He says, you can go fly fighters and live on a carrier with 5,000 other guys. Um, and you know, that hour a day or a couple hours a week that you're flying is, is, is amazing. Or you can fly an, air, fly an airplane that's still an awful lot of fun, but when you land, there are restaurant bars and women. <laughs> Sign me up. <laughs> <laughs> that's all it took was restaurants, bars, and women. That's right. <laughs> In order, or is there a different order? <laughs> well, maybe it's slightly different order. Uh, so yeah, so you, you figured out you got selected for the P3. What was kind of the process next and in getting inside the P3 and flying that? So, uh, T44 is finished flight school. Um, 
and then go to the uh, replacement air group, commonly known as the RAG, for the P3, which was in Jacksonville for me because I was going to be based in Jacksonville. And you go through training, learn how to fly the P3, and then you get to your squadron. And uh, you're a low man on the totem pole. And so there are three pilots in each crew, and you start out as a 3P, you progress to a 2P, uh, become a plane commander, and hopefully get your own crew. What was the differences, or what were your thoughts the first time you actually had to hand fly the P3 coming from a fighter jet? Were you like, whoa, this thing is a pig? Or was it uh, just kind of cool seeing, having... Um, the missions and the plane and the size and the room, um, or was it kind of just like, dang, I kind of wish I would have stayed with the jets or the fighter jets. Yeah. The, um, the mission is, uh, you know, it's something I embraced and I, I thought it was a really cool mission in, in the P3 when back then during a the cold war, when you were flying on top of Russian submarines, other than pressing a button to drop a weapon, you're doing exactly what you do in wartime. So it was, less theoretical and more real. I mean, we're really tracking Soviet submarines as they, you know, motor their way through the water. So we know where they are. Um, so I, I like the mission. The airplane actually doesn't look like a big performance machine, but it's got uh, a lot of power and um, it's really a lot of fun to fly. And when you're flying it and spending hours and hours at 200 feet over the water, um, it's more there's more to it than meets the eye when you just see a P3 parked on the ramp. Um, so I really did enjoy flying the airplane itself. Um, I like the mission. Um, is it yanking and banking like you do in fighters? No. Uh, but there's other kinds of thrills. I was lucky enough to be Navy at the time had some special projects that they, that they did. Um, and we flew a certain mission where, you know, to get the buoys in the water the way you needed to, you had to be at 60 degrees angle bank because you're putting them so close together and being at 60 degrees angle bank, the autopilot won't go there. So you're hand flying it at 300 feet um, okay. is kind of thrilling. Talk about you, you keep mentioning the mission and, and kind of tracking subs, but can you take me through uh, a typical day of what a mission would be like, uh, what a mission looked like at low level flying, were you kind of trying to stay away from the subs so they couldn't know you were there or what did it all look like? Um, kind of all of the above. So, very long pre-flights, about three hours you show up and you go brief um, at the ASW Operational Center, the ASWOC, and you have TACOs who are naval flight officers, not pilots, and they are the tactical coordinators. They run the mission. We fly the airplane, they run the mission. Um, it takes both um, to, to pull it off right. And depending on where you were in the world, um, I deployed to Iceland and to uh, Rota and Lodges um, kind of depended on how the mission went. You know, in Iceland, the Soviet submarines are coming down through the Greenland, Iceland, United Kingdom gap. Um, it's not a place they hang out, so they're transiting. So um, you didn't have to quite stay as low on top as you need in other places where they're more in an operational area where maybe they don't like it so much when you're on top of them. Um, Trying to be in a place where they don't know you there is 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 pretty hard because, you know, we track them through sound. And needless to say, a big four-engine airplane over the water puts a lot of sound in the water. So uh, they can hear us just like we can hear them. Are they like, oh, crap, they're back? Or are they kind of they just like, what are they going to do? <laughs> like, exactly. they know where exactly. we are. Like, <laughs> it is what it is. Yes. Um, 
Do you have any kind of like uh, crazy horror stories from a mission, uh, being down on one engine or flying low over the water and didn't think you're going to make it back? Or was it all kind of just kind of vanilla? Uh, no, there were some exciting times. So uh, one of the you, interesting things about a P3 is to save gas, we feather an engine. Um, so we shut an engine down. Um, usually the leftmost outboard, the number one engine, uh, because there's no generator on that engine. There are generators on the other three. Um, so to save gas, we shut one engine down. If we're on a really long mission and the and the weather's right, we'll shut down two engines. So one on the left, one on the right. And so one night we were flying over the med um, on two engines at a thousand feet, and one of them, one of the ones that was still running, went away. Uh, it, the gearbox came apart and it shut itself down, and it was. Yeah, about eight seconds of absolute panic and terror. And we had a flight engineer who was awesome. And he got those other two engines almost started before we could ask him to do it because he was probably as scared as, as we are. Uh, so it was, it, it only lasts a brief time, but there is no, um, uh, if you look at a uh, single engine performance, it's a rate of descent chart. Oh, nice. A yeah. thousand feet so, and the water comes very fast. So, you know, not a whole lot of time, but, you know, in reality, we really didn't, you know, we, we descended maybe a hundred feet before those other, other engines were running. Um, but it was a pretty excited moment in time. Um, the other one, the P3, you know, so you have this airplane that um, spends all its time over the ocean and um, in the infinite wisdom, the people who do the procurement, there is no weather radar on the P3, at least not back then. And so we had a radar operator, but the radar was really built for surface search. Um, he could use it for weather avoidance, but we were out off the coast of Africa doing a surface search and the weather was not very good. And so he's splitting his time between looking at the ocean, looking for ships and pointing it up in front of us so he can keep me out of thunderstorms. And we kind of had a whoops moment where he took, gave me a vector to fly and I did and it flew me right in the middle of a thunderstorm. And, uh, in the blink of an eye, you know, I watched the airspeed, you know, go from about 180 knots, which was a kind of a normal loiter airspeed for us to about 140, uh, and pretty hard angle, angle bank and hail and everything else. And, and, um, we just kept the turn in and luckily the P3 is, uh, virtually instantaneous power when you push the throttles forward. So we got the airspeed back, but, um, I didn't have to buy beer for the rest of the deployment because my radar operator felt so bad. And it was at that moment that the NOAA and NOAA uh, figured out that you could use a P3 for hurricanes. Yeah, probably. <laughs> you were the test flight. Once they got the data back, they're like, oh, this will be perfect for hurricanes. Let's stop doing this. Yeah. Yeah, they should have like a plaque of like you, the crew in there, like the first thunderstorm testing crew <laughs> by accident. Let's take a quick break and hear from our sponsor, RAA. In your line of work, you rely on precision planning, trusted resources, and experience each day. And that's just what RAA brings to the financial planning. Having served thousands of pilots for three decades, they understand how important planning for the future is for your career, livelihood, and family. That's why RAA offers free consultations with financial advisors who know pilots and can answer your most pressing questions, provide personalized guidance on the key areas you need to address now, and deliver actionable next steps to help keep your plan on course. 
Most importantly, you'll have a clear picture of your current financial life and a partner you can trust to help you achieve your financial goals. Meet with an RAA financial advisor specializing in your airline for a free consultation today at raa.com backslash pilot to pilot. That's pilot, T-O, pilot. Um, looking back on kind of the two types of flying or even your Delta flying, all the flying you've done, would you, what was been the, the most memorable flights, the most memorable flying? Was it the military? Was it airlines? Was it just your overall career as a whole? Uh, what was kind of the, the best, uh, the primo, the creme de la crop flying for you? Well, you know, we talked about my solo and that truly is, was a highlight for me. Um, I think back and I, I just still smile about it. Um, I loved what I did in the Navy. Um, it was, and it wasn't just the flying. It was, um, I was lucky enough to, uh, be on the same crew most of the time on my active duty squadron and then went to the reserves and stayed in the Navy reserves till I retired. And for about 10 years, had the same group of guys that we flew with. And just the best part was them, the camaraderie of what we did and what we did together and what we accomplished together. Um, it's to me, it's, it's all about the people. And, and flying for Delta was great. Um, I loved my job there. I feel I, you know, I'm on career three now and I feel unbelievably blessed that I've had three jobs that I loved and, um, not everybody is fortunate, that fortunate, um, to have that opportunity. Flying, flying for Delta had its own set of great rewards. And again, it's mostly about the people. And profit sharing. And profit sharing. (laughs) How long were you in the military for? So um, I was on active duty for six years and finished uh, my career in reserves. I was, my, you know, you said something earlier about timing, and I've been one of those people who has been just blessed with good timing. And uh, there was a radio personality who used to say, it's better to be lucky than good. And I've been lucky when it comes to timing. Um, I was getting towards the end of the time I could stay in my reserve squadron and fly. I was going to be looking at a non-flying job and they came out with an early retirement program and I was right in the zone to take it. So I took it and retired, um, early, which was awesome. And the first year they offered it, they actually gave us an incentive to take it. So I wound up getting extra years of service credited, uh, to my service record. Um, so that was great. Um, I got hired by Delta in 1986 when they, you know, they started hiring in the fall of 85 and they hired through 91. And so I was on the beginning of a hiring wave again, super fortunate. It wasn't cause I was good. It was just, my parents had me in the right year for all these things to line up in my life. I do say, I mean, it is all about luck and timing, but there is something to it where you create your own luck, uh, or you put yourself in a position to be in that spot. And obviously it does take a lot of just the, the actual timing to be on the right side of that. But the decisions you've made throughout your whole career have led to this moment to you getting that job at the time you did. Uh, that, that is true. There is some truth to that. I, um, you know, I got, when I was going through flight school, um, you know, my mission was to go through flight school. And so we didn't have to fly on weekends and I always uh, volunteered to fly on weekends. And I was lucky in the fact that if I was scheduled to fly in the morning, there were thunderstorms in the afternoon or vice versa. You know, So um, I didn't lose a training flight for maintenance, which on the T-28 was a, an anomaly because they broke all the time. They just never broke for me. Um, wasn't <laughs> anything I did. I you're the ones lucky. that broke them. You're, you're, the, you're yeah. the one that broke them for <laughs> maybe, other people. <laughs> maybe it was the guy after me that couldn't yeah. fly. 
And so I got through flight school really, really fast, like six months from my first flight to wings. And that lined me up five years later to get hired by Delta when I got hired by Delta. Why Delta? So, What was the, uh, the appeal or did you apply to every major airline at the time? And the first one that called, you took the job. Yeah. So somebody asked me that not too long ago, why Delta? And my answer was, they're the first ones to offer me a job. And there's, there's a lot of truth to that because, you know, my best friend that I've talked about, um, didn't get hired by Delta. And I can tell you in my heart, I probably believe Jeff's a better pilot than I am. And I, you know, it's, the great question is why did they hire me and not somebody else? And that's the great question that nobody ever has the answer to. And so I applied to American and Delta and Northwest at the time and United and Piedmont. And my brother at the time lived in Winston-Salem, North Carolina, and I love that area of the country. And I wanted to fly for Piedmont. And again, lucky that they didn't hire me because if you look what happens after that, U.S. Air by Piedmont, my era, they were 22-year first officers. They got furloughed three times um, versus me at Delta being in the right place at the right time. Very senior my whole career for my age. And it was just because of timing. Yeah, it's crazy to look back. And in, in 20 years or so, we'll look back now. Uh, the airline at the top isn't always going to be the airline at the top at the end of your career. So really... <laughs> Making that decision, like you really don't know. It's a it's a crazy industry. I mean, this last year has just proven that even more. Just the ups and the downs, and you don't know if your airline will catch the downturn at the wrong time, and then maybe they get absorbed by someone else, and it can just be a crazy career. Because no one ever thought that Northwest would be Delta. No one ever thought TWA would be American, or just some of these airlines would just go out of business. It's just it's it's an absolutely insane industry, and there's really not anything else like it that can come to the top of my mind right now. You're absolutely right, and. The thing that makes some of that harder is no one is more tied to their employer than an airline pilot because that seniority number is everything. And it's it's the rare person that decides midstream to make a change. Yeah, you're not wrong. Or go against it and go a different route in the industry because they don't like the airline flying or they, they find something else that they like better. That's right. Um, so you are at Delta. Uh, what was the flying like? You were, you were flying low level missions. Now you're flying jets (laughs) up in the thirties. Were you bored out of your mind? Uh, there are some moments of boredom. Um, I kind of mixed up my career with, I worked in a training department two different times, um, which was good for me. Uh, they were great times in my life when my kids were young and it kept me home and, made my going to the Navy reserves, not too painful for my wife because I wasn't traveling that much for Delta. Um, so that kind of broke up the flying a little bit. I started flying international pretty early in my career and realized that was the thing I wanted to do. So of my 35 years with Delta, probably not counting the training department, cause that was six years of it of the other 29, probably 25 of it was international flying. Um, you know, are there moments of boredom, you know, nine hours into a flight across the Atlantic? Of course there are, but, uh, you know, it's, it's the people, it's the places. And and that was the stuff that mattered to me. What planes did you fly at Delta? Um, so started out as 727 engineer, went to the L 1011, the TriStar as an engineer, everybody said it was the hardest school Delta had. I went through it and I'm like, this isn't hard. It was like a big P3. They were both Lockheed airplanes. 
So if you understood the way a Lockheed engineer thinks, it was easy. Um, then uh, went to first officer on the international version, the L-15, and then went, what was next? Uh, 7576 and 76ER co-pilot for just a short period of time when I got displaced. And then I went 727 captain, which was the greatest first captain airplane. Uh, no programming computers. Computers. I was 40 years old at the time. Uh, the other two people I flew with were sort of my age. So that was kind of a unique thing. It wasn't the old guy with the young people. So I got to fly with, you know, contemporaries, which was great. And the airplane was a ton of fun to fly. And then uh, 7576 captain, ER captain, and finished on a 777. So pretty much Boeing, except for a little Lockheed stint. That's right. You, you yep, avoided Airbus Boeing. the whole time. I did, which is probably one of the reasons why I retired early because uh, they retired the triple seven, and um, I I had a when they ran the displacement bid. Once they announced they're going to retire the triple seven, and we were bidding, what are we going to fly next? Um, the first time in a long time, the little boy pilot and me came out and thought, boy, I bet it'd be cool to fly the three fifty. And instead of going to the 76400, which would have been a very, very simple school for me, I bid, I bid the Airbus 350. And then I got it, awarded it. Um, I was pretty senior at the time, so wasn't a surprise that I got the award. And then the thought of, oh, no, now I got to study and go to school to fly the 350. How much do I really want to do that? And then the early retirement program came out. I'm like, ha, Peace. I've got an out. <laughs> <laughs> Adios, amigos. Yeah, I was about to say when when you said the earlier when you're kind of staying that story, I was like, man, the 350 would just be such a sick airplane to fly. Uh, and I was going to wonder how this led to the avionics and the computers and kind of uh, transitioning to us talking now and you being retired. So it looks like you made that decision before you went to the school. I'm sure you wouldn't have had any issues with it. It's just completely different. I mean, I, coming from my generation and the younger side, like I really love flying the highly advanced technology technology technologically sound airplanes. I just think there's nothing cooler than an all glass cockpit. And I'm sure maybe you might be on the separate side because you have so much experience with not necessarily steam gauges, but the normal traditional six pack. Correct. Correct. And you're right. I would have gotten through school. Um, it was, uh, uh, I just thought about it and, you know, I went, so I'm going to dovetail into my RAA job, if that's okay, real quick. Yeah. So all, all summer last year, we're talking to, clients about early retirement, whether it be flight attendants, mechanics, because they have packages also, and then pilots. And it's, what are you going to do? And we'd, we'd go through their financial plan and, and look at future spending and all those kinds of things. And the good news for almost all of my clients, the decision to leave or, or stay wasn't a financial decision. It's, what do you want to do? It was an emotional decision, which to me is the perfect way to do it because they had choices. You know, it's like, I have to keep working because I have to earn money. That's not where you want to be when you're three years from retirement. Um, so they had the option. And one day I said, kind of in the, in the morning, shaving said, okay, when are you going to make your decision? You, you know, you've been, you've been having this conversation with literally hundreds of people and you don't know what you're going to do. So um, like all important decisions, I sat down with my wife and I said, well, you know, I'm not sure I want to work that hard to go through 350 school. And she looked at me and said, since when are you scared of something? <laughs> and I said, I'm not scared. Maybe I'm lazy, but I'm not scared. <laughs> There's a difference. All right. There's a difference. 
You know, it's really interesting you kind of brought that up because leaving on your own terms and not having to, to continue to fly is probably the most peaceful way a pilot can walk away. Because if you are forced to retire uh, or you're flying because you don't or you have to for money, then you might start regret flying and you might not enjoy it anymore. If you leave early when you're not ready or say you turn 65, but you think you want to can fly for another two years, then you're sad and really going to miss flying. But the way you did it, it was kind of like at peace, like, hey, this has been a great career. I'm kind of over it <laughs> to, to have a lack of a better word for it. And I'm ready to walk out on my own terms. And it's kind of like when you come into this aviation industry, no one can force you into it because then you're going to feel like you're working your whole life. And if you find this via the love of aviation, then you're going to have a great career. So it's kind of uh, symbolic how you, you came in and how you came out for aviation. Yeah. You know, I never, I never connected those dots before, but you're right. Um, I did go out in peace. Um, it was, uh, you know, I've, I've talked to and worked with a lot of people as they transition to retirement and there's an awful lot of emotion that comes with it. And it's, I, I don't know that I talk to my clients and I don't know how to, I can't fix it for them, but it's one of those forewarned is forearmed. Um, because I've, I've talked to people who six months after they retire, I call them just to see how they're doing. And I can tell they're not happy and they're in a funk. And I thought about it and thought about it and couldn't figure out what's going on. And finally I realized it's, they're grieving. Um, for the people who spent their lives wanting to be pilots and that's the thing I want to do. And, you know, whether it's military or civilian, it really doesn't matter where, you know, what the avenue is. And they get to the end of their career and, you know, people are healthier um, at older ages now than they used to be. And, with the way the retirement is now at age 65, it's it's still an arbitrary number. And somebody is taking something that is really dear and important to them away from them. And it's hard to deal with for a lot of people. Yeah, there aren't many uh, and, industries and in aviation is one of the few. Maybe being a doctor, um, I'm sure there's other ones that I'm missing too, but where you solely identify as that, that defines who you are. People know you as the pilot. People know you as as the one that's gone flying these big airplanes and doing all these cool things, that's what you're seen as your whole life. And to give that up, you lose your identity and you don't know what you're going to do. So having a plan in place and you were, once again, you had some, some luck on your side and some hard work that brought you that luck to, to have another ability and have a third job to go into and dive into and have another identity. That's right. That's right. It's, um, there's I, somebody coined the phrase, you should retire to something, not from something. Yeah. And, and I believe that, and that, and that to something can be anything. It can be volunteer work. It can be, I mean, there's a million great ways to fill up your days, you know, fulfillingly. Um, but waking up and figuring out what I'm going to do today probably isn't the best plan. So let's talk a little bit about RAA. Um, obviously we know it's a retirement company, but for you specifically, it wasn't just retire and go work for them. This has kind of been building up in your career while you're at Delta. You kind of had a side hobby and a side business, or maybe it was like a main business, you know, uh, talk a little bit about this whole process of leading to where you are today on the, the RAA side. Yeah. So I, I've always been fascinated with the markets as an economics major. Um, you know, I talked about how I wanted to go into banking. Um, and when Delta pre-bankruptcy, um, but when things were going bad, um, I sat down with my wife and I said, you know, um, people always talk about golden parachutes and right now I feel like we have a hoop and there's no fabric, you know, in the hoop. So if I jump, I'm plummeting to the ground and dying. I said, so I think we need to start knitting our own parachute. So my wife, um, wasn't working at the time. 
she's been a fitness instructor, didn't have a full-time job at the time. Um, although you could argue being my wife is a full-time job. Um, <laughs> uh, but so I said, you know, I think either, you know, maybe you need to go back into the workforce or I need to get a second job. And, you know, she blinked her eyes and said, I think you need a second job. And so I thought, okay, what can I do? So I, at the time I was playing a lot of golf and I had, uh, some friends who were career AFLAC agents. And so I got my insurance license and I worked for them for a little while. And Carl Youngdale, um, who, uh, was a Delta pilot retired when I did, um, was a partner at a company called advisor financial services in Atlanta. And Carl and I had been friends forever. And I talked, I said, your clients must need insurance. He said, yeah, of course they need insurance. So we started a little insurance agency and that was March of 08. And if you think about what happened in 2008 with the economy, you're thinking, wow, what a great time to get in the business. Well, the phone's blowing up. I'm answering the phone. I really wasn't part of advisor financial at the time. I was a separate entity. But I was on the phone all day long talking to clients because somebody had to because the world was melting down. Um, flash forward a little bit, and one of the original partners wanted to retire. Jeff Baumert and Carl Youngdale asked me if I wanted to help buy him out, and I did, and I became a, a partner of Advisor Financial. Uh, we were very Delta-centric, very um, active employee-centric. We had very few retirees at the time. Um, we started trying to make long-term plans of, okay, we're getting older, what happens next? So succession planning for the company. And we got approached by RAA, which was a Dallas-based company, mostly focused on American airline pilots and mostly focused on retirees. And if you think about how those two sides fit together, it was a match made in heaven. And so we merged with them in 2016. I became part of RAA at that, at that time. And uh, we're just doing what we do. It's, uh, we're growing, we're successful. I mean, I, I think we're successful. I absolutely love what I do here. Um, I think it's a great place to work. I was talking to somebody the other day and we have a lot of really long time, uh, employees and that doesn't happen if it's not a great place to work. So, um, we, um, I love what we do. I believe in what we do. I believe our clients have really good outcomes when they work with us. So, um, it is, it is a, it is a passion for me. That's awesome. Uh, talk a little bit about RAA, uh, the mission, the, 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 the whole goal. It's mostly aviation centric, correct? Like you don't really handle much outside aviation. I'm sure maybe you would if they came to you, but no one turns away money, but, uh, it, it's solely centered right now around aviation and specifically for airlines. I'm pretty sure your website lists out almost every single airline that's there yes. and you specifically have people that are trained in those areas to work with that airline and give you the best opportunity yes. and, and the best planning. Uh, talk a little bit about, say, going through the whole process of signing up with you until retirement. What does it look like? Um, what am I getting into and the importance okay. of it? Okay, so I, I, I got to just backtrack one little thing. I'd be remiss. Um, REA became part of Allworth Financial in January of 2020. Um, Allworth, if you will, is the general market side and we are the aviation division of. Got it. So we are still focused on, um, um, on aviation and we are. So you're and like, so we uh, you're like Piedmont airlines back in the day, just getting bought up by everyone and changing. Names. <laughs> <laughs> it feels like that sometimes. Yeah, right. Um, so we, we focus on the airlines. We, we, we believe we know everything. That's a bold statement that, in, that is involved in dollars in the life of an airline pilot. Um, we know their benefits. We know their disability programs. We know what kind of insurance is offered through their employer. 
We know all their investment options that are available inside the plan and outside the plan. Um, we, you know, annual enrollment in the fall is the busiest time of year for us. And you think, what do you have to do with that? I mean, you guys don't provide medical insurance. No, we don't. But we have lots and lots and lots of clients who call us and say, hey, Gary, did you review the medical options for 2022? And yes, I have. Well, what do you think I should pick? And, you know, we, we talk through it. You know, that's not what we do, but it is what we do. Um, you know, I, I tell my clients I want to be involved in everything that involves money in their life because I can I can be a resource for them. Um, so how does it work? You know, we, we, we talk to folks. We have pilot reps who are uh, represent us on the line. Um, a lot of our new clients come through there. Um, if it seems like a good fit and they're looking for professional management, um, they come to us and they get assigned an advisor who onboards them and gets in deep in their life to try and understand what their wants and desires are. You know, I've got, I've got a very, very simple um, financial planning formula and it's one plus two equals three. And is one is the math side of financial planning and that's what we do. Um, we're really good at it. Two is emotion. So Justin, you know, if I'm working with you and your wife, I need to know how you guys feel about money, how you feel about your future, what you want your future to look like, because all the math in the world doesn't give us the right answer if I give you an answer that keeps you up at night. So it's it takes both sides. It takes what we do for our clients and it takes the client's input to us so we can truly understand you know, where it is they want to finish, what it is they want in life and, and in retirement. Would you say your your clientele uh, would be mostly kind of the the fifty to sixty five range, uh, the people that have been pushed on retirement for a while, been in this industry for a while, or would you say it's a wide range of ages, all the way up to the newly minted regional airline FO to uh, someone that's getting ready to retire at Delta sixty five? We have both. Um, our average age is probably in the of the active pilots is probably in the mid fifties. Um, but we do have a lot of, a lot of folks that are 60 and above, but we have, we have a lot of young people when, when Delta, well, when the airlines furloughed, Delta technically didn't furlough last year, but when the furloughs were announced, one of the things we did, because we believe we are part of, of the aviation community, you know, we, we let people know that if you are furloughed, we will take you on as a client and we will not charge you anything until you get recalled. That's awesome. Because, because. They're going through their own thing, if you will. I mean, they're trying to figure out, okay, I bought a house because I thought my job was secure. Now what do I do? I'm, I, don't, I don't have employment. You know, we put on webinars for ExpressJet, which unfortunately shut down. And one of the big things we talked about was how to, how to apply for unemployment. Now, you know, most times in our history, we really don't get an unemployment insurance very often. But we knew they needed it. And so we went out and gotten smart on it so we could help them. What's the importance of starting at age 23 in retirement? Um, play, I mean, not even 23, just starting as early as possible. Some of that's even 30, maybe put off for a while. You know, when you're 23 years old, I'm sure you're the very same way. You don't really necessarily think about the end of your career and how you're going to make money after this. And not everyone's going to have one, two, or three jobs to fall back on, or even a job to retire to. They're usually retiring from. Uh, talk about the importance of starting young in retirement and uh, really kind of finding the right balance for how you want to live your life now and how you want to live your life in the future. That's a great question. And it's at that age, it's, it's pretty simple. You know, the value of compound of compound interest, um, you know, those dollars you save at 23 are 
worth so much more than those dollars you save at 63 because they had all those years to grow and grow and grow. And so you've got to leverage your employer retirement plan because virtually everyone either has, a, you know, they're, they're putting something in or a match. You know, you've got to, you've got to exploit that match so you're getting free money. I mean, that's, that's huge. You put 3% in, they put 3% in, you're up 100% before you invest any of the money. I mean, it doesn't get any better than that. And, and, and it's planning and it's, and it's control. So there's savings, there's planning, and then there's controlling expenses. And I don't mean living without because hopefully you don't, you have all the things you want, but you'd need to do it in a way that makes sense. Um, you know, the simple concept of spend less than you make, um, that, that's not very complicated. But, but it we, is so. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It, it can be because, yeah. because we, we, get, we, get, we get caught up with the keeping up with, keeping up with the Joneses, as the old saying says. And even though we don't realize it's happening, all of a sudden the people we know, the people we're friends with are buying bigger houses. They're buying fancier cars. And you got to somewhere in your mind say, is that what's important to me? And what is that going to do to my financial health long term? You can, you truly, if you get hired with one of the majors now, and barring, I'm not going to say unforeseen events, because if you got hired at 30 today, there are unforeseen events in your future. It's going to happen, whether it's, you know, we didn't see 9-11, we didn't see the pandemic, we didn't see the airlines all going bankrupt in 07. Um, something is going to happen again. It's just the way it is. Um, but if you get hired by one of the majors now, there is no reason you can't have all of the above. You can have a really great house and you can drive really nice cars and you can save and enter retirement in a incredibly financially stable position. You can do it all. You just got to think about the process and the planning of it. Talking to a young person, what's kind of the, the number one or maybe like three tips or advice you'd give them? Obviously, you've kind of shared some right now, but like if you could just get one person and they had a phone call, they had an intro meeting, they didn't sign up, but you want to get one thing across to them, what would it be? That's a great question. I'm thinking. Um, Max out your count. One, oh, I'm only getting one. I can't do it with just one. You can do a couple. You can do a couple. Okay. I, I was going to say, spend, spend, less, spend less than you make. That's okay. number one. Okay. Because if you don't do that, then you've got nothing left to save. So if you, if you do that, then you can save. And, and if you spend less the whole time, you're going to wind up with way more money than you ever dreamed of. I mean, the, the, the new hire 30, 35-year-old is going to retire with millions and millions of dollars in their 401k plan if they start contributing right up front. And so save for the long haul. We were talking about keeping up with the Joneses and I think aviation is kind of a, a special case in this. And I'm sure, like we said, it's like doctors. Uh, delayed gratification is very much what this industry is. You kind of suffer, you make sacrifices, you don't make a lot of money until you are, at sometimes up until recently, now it's a regional pilot, they can make some pretty good money, but before they're making minimum wage, essentially they weren't doing very well. But it's very much a delayed gratification and it's very hard when you are at a crappy job building your hours, seeing all your friends, you know, buy that BMW or buy this car or going on this vacation and you're still making twenty to $30,000 flying a plane, building the hours so you can hope to get hired by a regional airline or hope to get hired by a major or a fractional or whatever it may be. And then when you finally get that first paycheck, you know, your first thought isn't saving. Your first thought is, 
well, my buddy has this, they've done this, they've done that and that. And now it's my turn to do this, that, and that. Um, how hard mentally is it to, to say no to that? Or do you even say like, Hey, you know, I mean, just one vacation isn't bad. Like go for it, have some fun and then get back to planning because we know that life is, is unpredictable. Yeah. I really think you can do them both. Um, it, you're right. It's, it was hard. The, the older generation of, of, uh, commuter guys, uh, they were making nothing. And it's really, really hard uh, to listen to what I'm saying and and do it when you're making, like you said, minimum wage. Uh, you know, I as you were saying it, though, I was thinking about the very beginning of our conversation and how great it is to fly an airplane. And so your friend might have a BMW, but he doesn't get to go to work and fly airplanes. Depends on what airplane you're flying, though. <laughs> you could be Still in a crappy Aztec that you're just hoping will start and won't shut down on you. <laughs> but no, I agree with you. 100% agree with you there. You, you you definitely have to remember what you're doing and, and the end goal because it is very much a delayed gratification and everyone wants to make the the Delta 65A350 money and the profit sharing check. Like That's kind of like the, the, the goal. And that is definitely can happen, but you have to remember that's farther down the line. So like you said, spending less than what you make, which is harder than a lot of people think. It's a very simple mindset, but it can be very kind of hard if when you're in the Instagram world, the social media world, or you even go to Oshkosh and you see someone has an airplane that's 28 and you're like, well, I want an airplane, you know? So let's go buy an airplane. <laughs> yeah, it's interesting because um, when I was still flying, you know, I'd meet people and, you know, times have been pretty good the last couple of years. I mean, if you, especially if you take COVID out of the mix. Um, it's been really good. People are making a lot of money um, flying airplanes at the majors. And I would talk to, you know, younger folks who have only been here for a couple of years and they think this is the way it's always going to be. And that's a dangerous thought because it's not always going to be this good. Um, the thought that I'm never going to take a pay cut in the next 30 years as a Delta pilot, I think is folly. Um, it's, there's something's going to happen again. And so, you know, we uh, at Delta have green slips where you get paid double. And I always say green slips are crack cocaine. Uh, they're maybe more addictive than crack cocaine. And I see guys who work themselves to the bone because there's overtime flying available and they just can't say no. And I, I say, what's the point? If you're not home with your family and enjoying this moment in time when your kids are seven and five or whatever age, because they're only seven and five once, um, you're, you're missing a big part of your life. So there's got to be work-life balance. There's got to be make as much money as I can, but within reason. Yeah, um, I agree with that. And, and now is definitely a testament to that because there's so much flying available for everyone. And I think it's going to be one of those things where everyone's like, got to make the money while you can, got to make the money while you can. And then they'll get burnt out in five months. And then it's going to be like, oh, well, I don't want to make that money anymore. There's no amount of money that can, I mean, there is an amount. I'm sure everyone has their number, but, <laughs> and they'll keep bumping up that, that number to make sure they get all the flights covered. But there is definitely a moment where you sit back and you think about like, well, maybe it's not worth it anymore. Maybe it's just better for me and my mental health, my family, whatever it may be to stay home and not take that flight. Absolutely. Absolutely. And you're talking about how thinking about Delta never taking a pay cut or kind of how the airline industry can change. You yourself have seen the cockpit go from three people to two. No more flight engineer. I think one of our biggest threats for having a, not even a successful career, but a long standing career and making the money until 65 
is going to be technology and whether it's single pilot or whether they eventually go to autonomous. Now, I don't know what that looks like, the timeline, but it's definitely kind of a threat to someone that is getting into the industry right now. And that could come pose a, a factor here in the next 20, 30, 40 years, maybe sooner, who knows. But I think that's definitely going to be something that people have to come into uh, combat when they're uh, planning for retirement and thinking about, do I want to fly single pilot? Do I want to be a drone operator or whatever that may look like? You're, you're completely correct. And, uh, you know, I never thought I'd live to see driverless cars. And although they're not there yet, I'm going to live, knock on wood, I'm going to live to see them. Um, and we can say, oh, the public will never accept being in a plane without pilots. Uh, I, don't, I don't believe that they anymore. Will, they will 100%. accept it. <laughs> yeah. Yep, they will accept it. Um, so that, that, is, that is a great, great point. And what does it look like? I don't know. Um, you know, if you're 50, your career is probably okay because I don't think it's going to happen that fast. If you're 25 and entering this industry, you know, um, and I, I'm, I'm not predicting the future, um, but is, you know, are the cargo pilots going to be the first to go? I don't know. I mean, it would seem that's the natural step, but I have no idea. Yeah, no idea. Uh, it's, but yeah, I think that is one of the biggest threats to it and something to, to take into account when you're just looking at a career here and, and thinking about, well, UPS, FedEx make this much money. I want to go there or uh, a Delta CEO or not CEO, obviously that'd be great, but <laughs> a Delta captain makes this much money. It's like, well, I mean, you, you don't know what that process is going to look like. And like we said, if they can offer cheaper plane tickets, maybe uh, people will jump on that. They'll fly in a plane with no, with no, no human flying. Um, or even if they go to single pilot, does that reduce, does that increase the pay for the actual pilot they have? Does it reduce the pay? Like there's so many unknowns that might come up out of here. And with the pilot shortage that is always looming and has been looming for 40 years, it does seem like there is an actual somewhat of a pilot shortage. Does that fix the shortage? Does going down to one pilot in some airplanes help fix the shortage? So there's so many questions, unknowns, and just kind of a typical tumultuous career in aviation, right? Yes, absolutely. Um, constant change. Yeah. One thing I wanted to say about RAA, and I think this is important to say, and you've kind of touched on it too, and I think people can kind of get the vibe from it. But when I met you guys at RAA, it truly felt like a solid group of people. And it just felt like you guys had the right mentality when going about it. And it's making sure it's kind of what you said with retirement, the one plus two plus three and how it's uh, math and emotion. And you guys really focus on the emotion and you want to make sure people are comfortable and truly understand what retirement looks like. And like you said, I can make all the math work, but if it doesn't match your emotion level and what you want out of this or what you're expecting, then I'm not going to be able to make you happy. And you guys are solely focused mainly on making them happy and, and, return of that. That usually means money as well. But uh, I definitely got a solid family vibe and I hope that someone is an Ohio State fan. So that definitely helps as well. So go Bucks. But <laughs> <laughs> I definitely got a, a great vibe from, from you guys. And if anyone is interested in, in aviation retirement or just retirement in general in aviation, especially if you work for the airlines or if you work for an aviation company, head to their website, ra.com, or you can go to ra.com backslash pilot the pilot and you can sign up there and someone can reach out. But it, it is a great company. And, and I encourage you, if you're young, to do this. Uh, we, we didn't have a job to, that we could retire or set up for retirement until I have the one now. So we've been putting it in retirement and it's definitely been thinking about it at 30. And like you said, money is so much more important for retirement when you're younger. And it's a big difference between 25 and 30, 35 and, and or 30 and 35 and, and 35 and 40. It's just those extra five years. So it's never too early to start. And uh, yeah, that's pretty much my, my spiel. And the last thing I'll say on that, but I'm sure you'll agree with that. I do agree. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, is there anything else you wanted to say about RAA or um, uh, the company in general? No, I, it's, uh, I think uh, 
our I think what we do is is vitally important. Um, we uh, and I'm I'm going to steal this from Carl Youngdale uh, when he said maybe the most important thing we do is take emotion off the table. It's really hard to manage your own money with no emotion. Um, we make and if we can help guide our clients and and help them prevent making a bad decision, um, then we've achieved our goal because we all make decisions based on our gut instead of our brain sometimes. And that's, 100%. that's it's natural. Yeah, yeah. 100%. <laughs> Emotion is definitely uh, the leading case in what most people make their decisions by. And if you can have someone that you can trust, and that's a big thing. I mean, you guys call, if if they come and reach out and there's a bad vibe and they, there's no pressure to sign up and then like it's all that. So if you just, if you trust someone like that, and I feel like you'll find that at RAA. Uh, I have some rapid fire questions for you and then we'll wrap it up. Um, are you okay. ready for them? They're just aviation based sure. questions and you answer the first thing that comes to your mind as quick as possible. Okay. What's your favorite airplane ever made? Uh, a P 51 Mustang. Corporate plane. Your airline guys are terrible with corporate jets. So if I you know. just say Gulfstream, that's fine. That works. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, that small plane over there, it looks like an RJ. That's my favorite. <laughs> What's your favorite airliner? Triple seven. What's one plane you wish you would have had the opportunity to fly in your career? F-16. What's something you wish you knew before you became a pilot? Boy, how much fun it is, but I learned. Ugliest airplane you've ever seen? The short. <laughs> yeah. Not very short. They're kind of long and fat, <laughs> but it is short of expectations. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Who's one person in the industry you would like to meet most? They could, could have died or they could be still living. Sully. Favorite thing about aviation? How much fun it is. I did already ask you that. I did. Hardest approach? Uh, river visual to DCA. Favorite approach? River visual to DCA. <laughs> it's funny how it works out like that, right? <laughs> uh, what is your favorite book you've ever read? Does it not have to be aviation? Uh, Trinity by Leon Uris. Favorite movie? Forrest Gump. Now, favorite aviation book and movie, if you have one. Uh, the Navy would take my retirement away, so it's got to be Top Gun. <laughs> yeah, it has to be. <laughs> it has to be Top Gun. Yeah. Um, aviation book, I don't know. I can't. My mind's going blank. You better start reading some aviation books, man. Come on. I know. Yeah. Okay. What's your favorite airport you've ever landed at? Atlanta, because it's home. Least favorite airport? Shanghai. IFR or VFR? IFR. You're in uh, the Atlanta airport. You got about 45 minutes or 30 minutes before your next flight. You're going to the food court. You have to buy food for everyone or get food for everyone. Uh, what are you getting? PF Chang. Ooh, you're a healthy guy. I was expecting like a salad or like a nutrition shake or something like that. No. Nope. <laughs> uh, would you rather fly over mountains, beaches, or the city? Mountains. There's an, this isn't a very easy question for you. I'm going to ask it anyway, because I think it'll be fun. Uh, you specifically retired so you could avoid this type of airplane, but would you rather fly Airbus or a Boeing? Boeing. <laughs> Favorite airline library? Delta. Outside of Delta. Um, probably the old Piedmont paint scheme. Yeah, that's a great one. I love seeing when uh, the American has what is like an Airbus or something like that has the, the Piedmont on it. You're like, yeah, that was cool. That was a good time aviation. Yep. Would you rather fly long trips or short trips? And what I mean by that is you're up and your 777 fly as long as possible 
or you are doing as many short trips you could do. You're on a domestic turn and you're going to New York, LA, Dallas to Atlanta. Long, long, long. Give me long all day. Yep. Hardest check ride you ever had to take. Hardest check ride I ever took. Uh, my check ride to be a uh, plane commander at P3. Biggest regret in your career. Oh, I got a weird answer for that. Um, I kind of wish I had flown fighters, but I'm really glad I didn't fly fighters. So it's <laughs> Fair enough. double-edged sword. Yeah, depends on what day you wake up, right? Like, oh, yep. I wish I would have done that. Biggest win of your career? Getting hired by Delta. Would you rather commute on a CRJ or an ERJ? And I mean like the CRJ 200 or 145. We're not talking about the 175, the, the regional heavy. God, neither. <laughs> oh, I'll drive. Can I get a rental car? <laughs> if you're going to buy a plane. I never commuted. Never commuted? Dang, man. Never you, commuted. You do have a very obscure aviation <laughs> career, and you have been extremely lucky. <laughs> yes. Um, if you were to buy an airplane, would you buy Piper or Cessna? Cessna. If your kid came up to you today, would you send him through university part 141 training or an ATP, or would you go to a local mom and pop school out in the Atlanta area? I don't know either. Um, university. What's your favorite airline to fly? You don't probably buy tickets. You fly standby all the time. But if you could take one business class trip all over the world, what, what airline would you go on? I'm going to say Delta. I figured. Company yeah, man, I through and through. Right. I know. I know. <laughs> well, Gary, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. It was great to, to, to hear more about you and your career and kind of what the thought process you're going through and, and how you came into aviation where it literally was just one conversation in it with a secret service member. And it's crazy to think that we could all have that conversation with someone. We could just go tell them, I love flying at Delta or I love flying where I fly. And they could be kind of totally turned on to the situation and go all in just like you did. So you never know who you're interacting with and the outcome that you can have on their career and their life. And uh, it's important to, to show off your best side as much as you can because no one likes a crabby pilot. Am I right? That's right. Yeah. Well, Gary, I have one more question for you. And I always ask this question. It is, what are three things that you would tell a future pilot right now? Say someone right now is listening to this, like, I want to be just like Gary. I want to have the best luck he's ever had and never have a downturn and never have to worry about anything and be just as lucky and as good as Gary. What would you recommend them? Three tips right now. Three tips. Work hard, uh, which includes study. So work, study hard. Um, be an optimist. And that's a hard thing to tell somebody to be. And understand that we don't control the future. So it's all about mental health, like not mental health, but state of mind. Yeah, uh, that is very important. And mental health is important too, especially right now in yeah. aviation. Uh, but uh, understanding you, you have no out, you can have no control over certain situations, but doing the best you can to control what you can control and be the best version of yourself at all times uh, to handle those things that you can't control. Yes, absolutely. Well, Gary, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. It was a lot of fun to talk to you and hear your story. Like I said, uh, if anyone's interested in RAA or retirement planning, don't put it off any longer. At least go fill out the form, raa.com backslash pilot to pilot, and you can go ahead and get in contact with maybe Gary. You can hear the famous Gary, and you can ask him some <laughs> questions, tell him you heard him on the podcast. Or there's a couple, or there's at least one I know. There's probably some more Ohio State fans there. So if you just want to talk Ohio State football, go ahead and fill that out, and they'll put you in contact. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> All right, Gary. Thank you so much for coming on. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Justin. Aviation that is a wrap on episode 185. I hope you enjoyed today's podcast. Uh, if you, like I said earlier, if you're interested in aviation retirement, go ahead and go to raa.com backslash pilot the pilot. Other than that, check out pilot the pilot on Instagram and pilot's coffee. 
Hope you're all having a great day. And as always, happy flying.